0: Part Four, Chapter Seven of *The Gambler* by Catherine Cecil Thurston. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Part Four, Chapter Seven. The remaining hours of that night passed like a dream for Clodagh. Condemn herself as she might for the weakness, there was no subduing the tumultuous excitement kindled by the thought that she was to see Gore again. It was not to be denied that time intervening incidents, and a subconscious personal desire had blunted the first resentment that Lady Frances Hope's disclosures had engendered. In the reckless pursuit of excitement that had marked the past three months, she had imagined him banished from her mind, but now, at the knowledge of his promised advent, she realised that it had only been an imagination, that despite everything, his place in her mind had never been usurped. When at last she fell asleep, long after midnight, her thoughts were strange, exciting, almost happy, and when next morning the entrance of Simonetta roused her to consciousness, it was with something like hopefulness and anticipation that she turned her eyes to the open window, through which the clear country sunlight was breaking between the gay chintz curtains. With a quick, eager wakefulness she sat up in bed and pushed back her loosened hair. A feeling, long forgotten, was stirring in her heart the vague, delicious hope of future things that had been wont to thrill her long ago, when she rode her father's horses along the strand at Oristown, in the untarnished dawn of an Irish day. During the process of dressing, this sense of anticipation grew, and with it came a spontaneous wish for action. She became imbued with the same desire for light and air and freedom that had possessed her on the day in Florence when she gazed out upon the distant hills from the window of the villa. Something of her eager energy was shining in her eyes as she descended the stairs and entered the sunny morning-room, where breakfast was always served when the party at Tufnell was small. Lady Diana and her husband were already in the room, glancing through their morning letters, the former wearing a plain linen dress, the latter an old shooting-suit that had seen much service. At the moment that she opened the door, Lady Diana was reading aloud from the letter in her hand while George Tufnell was laughing with enormous amusement. They made a very homely, pleasant picture of contented, successful married life. Seeing their guest, they both came forward cordially, and George Tufnell smiled warm-heartedly as he took her hand. "'Well, Mrs Mulbank, and what is Tufnell like in daylight? Isn't it worth a hundred Londons? Have you got an appetite for breakfast?' Lady Diana laughed, and she led Clotus to the table. "'George is a horrible egoist,' she said cheerfully. "'He thinks the only things in the world worthy of consideration are Tufnell and the Tufnels.' Clodagh smiled as she took her seat. "'He's very much justified,' she said softly. Then she glanced round the table. "'But where's Lady Frances?' Her hostess smiled. "'Breakfasting in bed. I knocked at her door at seven to ask whether she would care for a canter before breakfast, or whether she would like to walk over the home-form with George, but she literally drove me away.' "'She's out of sorts today, Poor Frances. "'Oh, I am sorry,' Cloda looked distressed. "'Just to-day, when everybody's coming.' George Tuffle turned to her with his habitual bluff kindliness. "'Don't trouble Mrs Milbank,' he said. "'She'll be all right by the afternoon. "'It's the mornings that society plays the deuce with. "'Look and die! Look what a country life has done for her!' Cloda looked almost shyly at her hostess's straight shoulders and healthy, happy face. "'Don't make me more envious than I am,' she said gently. "'Lady Diana has everything.' "'With a sympathetic gesture, Lady Diana extended her hand and touched hers lightly. "'My dear,' she said, "'you have no reason to repine, "'and Tufnell is to bring you enjoyment, not regret. "'What amusement can we plan for the morning, George?' George Tufnell looked up from the omelette to which he was helping himself. "'What would Mrs Milbank like? "'You may do anything you like here, Mrs Milbank.' "'Except be unhappy.' Loda smiled brightly. "'Anything? "'Anything in wisdom?' She hesitated for a moment, looking down at her plate. Then, with a quick winning movement, she lifted her head, glancing from one of her entertainers to the other. "'Then give me a horse,' she said quickly, "'and let me ride by myself till lunchtime.' Lady Diana looked distressed. "'What, alone?' she asked. But her husband laughed cheerily. Why not, if she wishes? Tufnell is Liberty Hall, Mrs. Milbank. You shall have the best horse in the stables. Lady Diana smiled indulgently. I hope we are doing right. Four hours by oneself in the saddle is rather a lonely thing. Oh, but I won't be alone, Clotus cried. A good horse is the best company in the world. At the conclusion of breakfast, she rose to go upstairs and change into her habit. As she passed her hostess, she paused. "'Shall I run in and see Lady Frances? she asked. Lady Diana looked up at her. "'I think not. Frances called through the door this morning that no one was to go near her before twelve o'clock. I'd wait till then, if I were you.' And Clodagh nodded comprehendingly, and left the room. Half an hour later she rode down a long avenue of chestnuts, mounted on a splendid bay horse of Lady Diana's, and emerged upon the road that skirted the park wall. Tufnel Place was situated in one of the richest corners of Buckinghamshire, and as she drew rein for a moment outside the large gates and surveyed the surrounding country, it seemed to her that, as far as the eye could reach, the land stretched away in one great tract of prosperous, well-tilled fields and sweeping meadowland, broken by high hedges and low wooded hills. The day was one to revel in, the scene one to bring complete repose and as she gathered up her reins and allowed the bay horse to sweep down the gently sloping road into this land of plenty she permitted the atmosphere to take full possession of her for the moment the thought of london of her fellow beings even of herself fell away from her conscious consideration and she dreamed as an irish woman can always dream with her eyes open and her senses alert to her horse's slightest movement yet wrapped in a world of her own created from the warm blue haze of summer that lay over the rich country, from the summer sun that warmed her blood, from the close instinctive comprehension of nature that no artificiality has power to eradicate. It was more than three hours later when she rode back to the gates of Tufnell, having covered many miles of country, and revelled for a long delicious strength of time in her own musings. The air and the hot sun had warmed her face to a splendid healthy colour, her lips were parted eagerly, and across her saddle she was carrying a spray of honeysuckle plucked from the tall hedgerows. Her mood was generous, pliable, brimming with high impassive. If in that moment one loving hand had been stretched forth to hers, one honest soul come out of the sunlight to meet her own, many things might have been different. But the moment came, and the moment passed. Riding quickly up the avenue, she drew rein at the hall-door, and at the same instant Lady Frances Hope crossed the wide, sunny hall. Clodagh saw her at once, and a shade of disappointment touched her face. Lady Frances was so intensely suggestive of the world she had been trying to forget. Her impulses of a minute ago shrank instinctively. The habit of indifference came back to her by suggestion. She suddenly felt ashamed of her sunburned face and of the spray of honeysuckle. But Lady Frances came forward to the hall-door, and at the same moment a groom hurried round from the stables. Clodagh slipped easily from her horse, took her flowers from the saddle, and then turned to greet her friend. "'How are you?' she said. "'I was so sorry not to have seen you this morning. I've had a glorious ride.' Lady Frances did not respond to the words with her habitual smile, and on closer scrutiny Clodagh observed that, despite a very careful toilet, she looked tired and annoyed. You've been away an age, she said irritably. It's after twelve, then perhaps I'd better change the coach is to be back from the station at half-past twelve. No, never mind. Diner isn't conventional. You can meet the people and lunch too in your habit. I wanted to talk to you. Cloda's eyes opened. It was new to find Lady Frances's manner either hasty or perturbed to me. What about? The other hesitated for a moment, then looked straight at her companion. "'About Walter Gore.' The onslaught was so sudden that Clodagh had no time to guard her feelings. She flushed, a deep, painful flush that spread over her cheeks, her ears, her forehead. Lady Frances looked at her mercilessly. "'I have been worrying so much about his coming. Worrying so about you.' "'About me?' Clodagh said the words consciously and uncomfortably. Yes, I feel so much for you. You who are so sensitive. Clodagh. She laid her fingers lightly on Clodagh's arm. Clodagh, I am your best friend. You believe that? You you have always been very good to me. And always shall be good to you. Look here. Her voice suddenly took on the tone of seeming frankness that is the clever woman's best weapon. I am enormously fond of you, enormously fond of you. I should hate to see you hurt or... or She paused judiciously. "'But who would hurt me? Why should I be hurt?' "'You shouldn't be, of course. But sometimes circumstances, chances, people hurt one. My dear girl, I'm unhappy at this unlucky coming of Walter's. It's hard, it's really hard on you.' As the words were uttered, it seemed to Clodagh that a faint cold wind blew from some unseen quarter, chilling the summer warmth, chilling her own happiness. "'Why why, hard on me?' she asked. "'Dear child!' Lady Frances's tone was deep and kind. "'Do you remember the night in town when you asked me to take you to the Tamperley's party?' "'Yes, I remember.' "'You remember why I refused?' "'Yes, I remember.' "'But you did not know my full reason for refusing. I had met Walter a day or two before we had discussed you. And what had Sir Walter Gore to say of me?' He said— "'Oh, dear child, don't ask me to be too literal.' "'But I do.' Cloda freed her arm. "'Is it worthwhile? I I tried to keep you two apart while I could, now that it has become impossible. "'But why should we be kept apart? What have I done?' "'Dear Cloda, you know Walter, you know how entirely he disapproves. Disapproves? Disapproves? What right has Sir Walter got to disapprove of me, to criticise, to, to speak of me?' Her voice shook not, as she herself imagined, with outraged pride, but with uncontrollable disappointment and pain. "'Oh, I resent it!' she cried. "'I resent it!' Then suddenly she paused, turning to her companion with an almost frightened gesture. Up the long avenue came the sound of wheels and the rapid clatter of many hoofs. Lady Frances put out her hand again and touched Clodagh's wrist. "'Here they are,' she said. "'I am glad to see your courage.' "'I admire it.' "'As she had intended, the sharp, concise words braced her companion. "'She stood for an instant longer in an attitude of nervous panic. "'Then suddenly she threw up her head with a touch of the boyish spirit "'that had marked her long ago. "'I i am not a coward, Lady Frances,' she said. "'Side by side they waited, while the big yellow coach, "'piloted by George Tufnell, swung round the bend of the drive.' and as Clodagh stood there, watching the great vehicle sweep round to the hall door, her face became pale, and her fingers closed tightly round the handle of her riding-crop. It was her world, her world in miniature, that swayed towards her, while she impotently waited its approach. On the box, beside Lord tufnell sat Mrs. Bathurst, radiant in summer garments. Behind were Deerhurst, Serico, Gore, and a middle-aged man who was unknown to her, as her eyes passed from one face to another, Tuffle drew the horses up with great dexterity. The servants sprang to the ground, and Lady Diana came hospitably forward from the recesses of the hall. The first guest to descend from the coach was Serico. Reaching the ground, he paused for a second to brush some dust from his light flannel suit. Then he came forward to his hostess. "'How do you do, Lady Diana, and Lady Frances?' He shook hands with both. Then he turned to Clodagh, with rather more impressiveness. "'How tremendously fit you look!' he said. Before she could answer, Deerehurst joined them, calmly taking her hand as though it were his right. "'Well, Circe,' he he said below his breath, "'we have followed.' Clodagh turned her eyes hastily, almost nervously, from Serico's attentive face to the cold features of the older man. "I "'I should feel very flattered,' she said lightly. Her eyes were on Deerehurst's; her hand was in his, but her mind was pointedly conscious of Gore's figure standing close behind her, of Gore's voice exchanging greetings with Lady Diana Tufnell. A moment later she knew that he had turned, and had seen the tableau made by the old peer, Serico, and herself. "'How do you do, Mrs. Milbank? It is a long time since we have met.' It was not until he had directly addressed her, not until she had turned and met his glance, that Clodo realised how deeply, how peculiarly, he had influenced her. She drew her fingers sharply from Deerhurst. "'It is a long time,' she said very softly. Gore took her hand. At the same moment Deerehurst laughed, his laugh of unfathomable cynical wisdom. "'Mrs. Milbank was the chrysalis in those old days, Gore,' he said lightly. "'Now you see the butterfly?' At the laugh and the tone... "'Gall's expression became cold, and he released Cloda's hand. "'So I have been told,' he said a little stiffly. "'I must congratulate Mrs. Milbank on her development.' "'He gave a slightly constrained laugh, and moved back to Lady Diana's side. Deerehurst looked after him, a malicious, humorous look. "'Isn't it too lenient of the prettiest lady in London "'to allow a young Puritan to take her to task in public?' he asked, in his satirical voice. Clodagh flushed, and, turning as if to answer, let the spray of honeysuckle slip inadvertently from between her fingers. Instantly both Deerhurst and Seracote stooped to recover it, the younger man was successful, and, straightening himself quickly, wheeled round to return it. Then his face fell, and again Deerhurst laughed. Without a word Clodagh had left the little group and disappeared into the house. End of part four, chapter seven.